Y'all did good, just like we rehearsed it Friday night. That was good. Great. Excellent. 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 Come on, let's praise God for these wonderful musicians. You know, we got some of the blessed musicians in the DMV. We praise God for their goodness to be with us today. Amen. How y'all feeling this morning? Everything all right? Y'all feeling good? Y'all glad to be in church on Sunday morning? Amen been a long week for some folks. It's good to be in the house of the Lord to get some revolution, get some restoration in your spirit. After wrestling with people all week long, you need a break. Amen. You need a break. This month, for the month of August, we are going to preach from the subject, Silent Killers Living Behind the Mask. Amen. And I'm not sure if I'm going to change each Sunday in terms of the silent killers. I may just stick with this particular one through the rest of August because there's enough here for us to go through August and still not finish the particularity of the subject. But we'll deal with this particular one this, this month. I want to draw your attention to the book of James, chapter 5. James chapter 5, we're going to read verses 17 and 18. Our rules for the sermon still remain the same as they did in the month of July. This is an open dialogue, so even though I'm speaking on a particular topic, please feel free to raise your hand and pose any questions that you may have in regard to the subject matter to which we are discussing. Amen? Amen. All right, James chapter 5, <clears throat> James chapter 5. Let's take a look at this short biographical description of a prophet in verse 17 and 18. Are we there? James chapter 5, verse 17. Now, if you haven't gotten to James yet, uh, to the left of James, his neighbor is Hebrews. And to the right of James, his neighbor is First Peter. So that's a landmark to help you get there pretty quickly. James chapter, five, oh, and it is in the New Testament. Don't, don't forget that. James chapter 5, verse 17. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. And he prayed earnestly that it might not rain. And it did not rain on the earth for three years and six months. And he prayed again, and the sky poured rain, and the earth produced its fruit. Amen. You may be seated. Silent killers living behind the mask. When I use the word silent killers, I'm referring to what may be deduced as maladies, issues which we mask we hide and we often attempt to not permit anyone to detect them 
from our life composition. What enables us to connect to the life stories in reference to the biblical characters is actually wrapped up in the one phrase that we read in verse 17 in reference to Elijah. He has a nature like ours. He has an internal composition like each of us. For a long time, we've always viewed people in the Bible as folk who are up here or far beyond our reach of attainment in terms of their lifestyle of living. But how many of us know if you read the Bible long enough, you'll discover that they're not really up here and their lifestyle certainly are not at a space to which we probably would argue they are worth our expending energy to attain merely because we come to realize they have a like nature as we do. In other words, they are no different than you and I. I understand we magnitude the life of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, Joshua, uh, David, Jeremiah, Isaiah. We, we lift those names with great reverence in reference to biblical characters. But when you read about their lives and you dig deeper than what you read on the surface, you discover they have a like nature like we have. In other words, they have failures. They have shortcomings. They get attitudes. They cuss. One of these days, I'm going to take the time and show y'all in a sermon that there are cussing people all through the Bible. That they use cuss words with regularity. You just don't see it. But it's right there in the text. They cheat. They lie. They've stolen. They've misguided. They've misled. The main thing is they make mistakes like we make mistakes. Because they have a like nature as you and I do. They themselves struggle with silent killers. Killers that entered their life and they wrestled with them just as you and I do in private behind the scenes. Behind the mask, they wrestled with silent killers. The mask is what we wear to convey to the onlookers that I'm strong, that I'm fine, that I don't have any weaknesses, and that I am the model of authentic Christian living. That's the mask that we live behind. Because behind that mask, in reality, 
is a person of pain, a person with a problem, a person who struggles with guilt, a person who really, when you look at their life, they are falling, they are failing, they are disintegrating, and they are coming to a point where they are being overwhelmed by the silent killer. Elijah is a man of like nature, but Elijah suffered from a silent killer. And the silent killer was depression. Depression gripped the life of Elijah. So much so that Elijah did what a typical person does who is under a great strain of depression. He wanted to die. He goes to God and says, Lord, whatever you do, kill me because I am tired of living in this life. When we talk about depression, Elijah joins many of us who struggle with depression as well. Now, I'm not talking about just Elijah historically. I'm talking about those of us in this room, what's today, August 4th? Who on August the 4th, 2019, at approximately 8.35 a.m., struggle with depression. Not out there, not across the street, not down the road, right here, 10185 Zion Drive, sitting right here in the pew. Look to your left, look to your right, you don't know who you're looking at because all you see is a mask. But you don't know what's going on behind the mask because we want to give the presentation that we got it all together, that we know that we are the authentic example of what Christian living is, and particularly if we hold a leadership office. We don't want anybody to know that we have failures, that we have shortcomings, that we are still growing in our walk with the Lord, that we are still trying to understand what it means to be a Christian. We're still trying to understand what it means to follow Jesus. We're still trying to understand how do I live by the Bible? How do I let the Bible live through me? We don't want anybody to know that we're still working at that. We want people to think that we've arrived at this space where we want you to do as we do, not knowing you're already doing it. We got silent killers. This morning, it just happens to be depression. Between the ages of 15 and 44, depression is the leading cause of disabilities in America. Now, now grip that for a moment. 15 to 44, arguably, a significant prime time of your life depression 
is a leading cause of disabilities. Depression ranks among the top three workplace issues alongside family crisis and stress. In the workplace, professionals, managers, owners, compliance officers argue that depression ranks alongside family crisis and stress. Depression is right there. Every day when we go to work, you probably don't know it, but somebody in your building is struggling with depression. Even strange enough, they may even be right next to you in a cubicle and you don't even know it because they have on the mask and they're trying to live up to a certain expectation or model, yet behind the scenes, there's a silent killer killing them. Persons who suffer from depression, some have said, cost the nation some $20 billion a year because they're unable to work. They're unable to contribute to the bottom line of the nation. Can you, can you get that? That's a lot of money when you think about people who can't contribute because they're depressed. Now you might ask, what's depression? Well, it's a difficult term, believe it or not, according to mental health professionals, to really define, but it does go a little something like this. Depression is an emotional condition it can either be neurotic or psychotic. It's characterized by feelings of hopelessness, inadequacy, gloominess, dejection, sadness, difficult in thinking, difficult in concentrating, and often an inactive or becoming an inactive individual. Depression. Symptoms. You sleep too much, or you may not get any sleep at all. Symptoms. You seem to have lost an interest in everything you previously had an interest in. You basically want to just be by yourself in the house, pull down the shades, shut the door. Hopefully anybody that stops by, not one or two times, recognize, move on, you're happy because the darkness is what your life is becoming accustomed to experiencing because you're behind the scene and not in the light. When you pull down the shades, shut the door, brings the curtains together, you're blocking out light and you're permitting darkness to dominate your psyche. A loss of energy. You get up in the morning, your eyes awaken, and you just do not feel like, now I'm not talking about every now and then. I think we all go through this. We get up, we don't feel like getting out to bed. We sleep another hour or two, and then finally we roll out. That's not depression. Depression is day in and day out, when you wake up, you don't roll out at all. You stay in there. And you stay in there. 
and you stay in there. You've lost energy to move. Feeling of worthlessness. I just don't feel like anybody cares. I don't feel like I even have anything to contribute anymore. I feel like everybody else's life has gone on and my life has done absolutely nothing and whatever it has done, it hasn't done for what I expected. So I really just don't have the energy to even try to pursue anything in life anymore and I just feel worthless. And when you throw kids in the mix who come in there and wanna know, daddy, mommy, when you gonna get up, I'm hungry and I don't feel like it. Get you some cereal or something. I just don't feel like getting up. And that's day in and day out. And might I remind you, that's not restricted to a non-Christian. There are Christian people who love Jesus and still suffer from depression. Their feeling of unworthiness and their feeling of guilt the person who is not a Christian may be guilty because they refuse to forgive someone even though they know they should, they just don't feel like it. But the guilt of the unforgiveness eventually overtakes them. The person who's a Christian feels guilty because they committed some sin, some disobedience, some act that they know would not and was not pleasing to God and they can't get over the fact that even though they've asked God to forgive them, they can't embrace the forgiveness themselves, and so guilt overrides them, and they sink into a space of depression. Reoccurring thoughts of death, suicide, and then the beginning talk of dying. These are symptoms of possible people who are struggling with depression. Be careful if you have teenagers because they may have learned how to mask the depressed pain very easily. Watching you and I in terms of mimicking is a powerful practice. What I see you do and what you see me do, what we watch each other do can easily be replicated. And children's eyes are generally upon the persons who are the most influential, which very well may be their father and their mother or both. And what behaviors they see them depict, they will mimic. Unless we are willing to share with them where we are is not the best space to be in. Or we do more extensive masking by making sure they don't see us in those conditions. So they talk about death. Now, what could cause depression? Well, I, I would contend that one major particularly one for young people, but also for adults, is social media. Because we have shared so much of our lives on social media, 
and we interact with people. That's, that's a way of the world now. You, you almost can't get away from social media. I mean, it's, it's virtually almost impossible. It's the way we communicate. I uh, went to a basketball game last Thursday, Wednesday. No, what day, what day was, did we go to the basketball game? Was it Wednesday? Tuesday, Wednesday? One of them days. Well, that's what I'm saying. We, we went to the game. Oh, it was Tuesday. Because when we went to the game, and I got to Bible study Wednesday night, and Mrs. Snow said, so how'd you enjoy the game? I'm sitting there thinking, how do you know I went to a game? And she told me, it was all over Facebook. And I'm thinking, by who? I, I don't do Facebook. I mean, I personally don't get it. I, I, I really don't get why it's such a preeminent practice on a daily basis. I mean, I think some people live on that thing all day long. I can't do it. I just can't do it. It's all, all in me to pick up the phone and call somebody, let alone go on Facebook and put all your business out there. Not your business, your business all out there. But that's what we do. Some people are so engaged in Facebook that when they look for responses, if the responses are not affirming or encouraging, eventually it sinks them into a space where they start to downgrade into a depressed composition. And can you imagine a young person whose other friends diss them on Facebook? or who's bullied on Facebook. Those are real live possibilities, social media. Relationships. If it doesn't go right, or at least not in the way to which that person had hoped, it could put them in a space of depression particularly if they have a difficult time forging a relationship with someone and all of a sudden they meet this person that seems to be the idea of what they're looking for and then for whatever reason the relationship is broken. And as a young person you don't understand life goes on. This is probably one of several relationships you'll probably engage yourself in they don't have enough experience like you and I are old enough to know that, you know, it's, it's just a part of walking in life. You meet some people, they'll come in, they'll go out, you learn from it and you move on. That's just the way life is. But they don't, they don't know that yet. And so arguably with the analogy, they put all their eggs in one basket. And when someone cracks one, their entire life begins to disintegrate. Relationships, social media, here it is, religion. Religion, because in religion, we so argue that there's a certain way of living, and there is, but we also argue to the point where we instill guilt if you do wrong, and not grace when you seek for forgiveness. 
And when they don't fit into the particular mold that we've argued that you had to in terms of religion, then it can lead to a space of depression because they have come to learn from us that religion is a vital part of existence. You need God in your life, but we've also seen to have coached them that when you need God in your life, it's a good chance that you won't make a mistake if you follow the word of God. Now, how many of us know that there ain't no truth, not, not even a speckle of truth in that statement? Because we make mistakes. That's a part of growing. And if it hadn't been for Jesus who said, in this world, you're going to have some tribulation, some tough times, some difficult manners in which you're going to grow, but be of good cheer. In other words, when you fall down, get on back up, try it one more time. And how many of you know that I've fallen down on the same stone over and over again? But I, I'm glad that grace and mercy enables me to stand back up one more time and keep on fighting the fight. Even with depression, God's grace has been sufficient to keep us moving. It says that two-thirds of people who suffer with depression generally do not seek treatment because it's a mental health issue. And, might I add, when we talk about mental health issues in the black church, that's a taboo subject. Amen, lights. We don't like to discuss that. But it's a real thing. It's real. You know we've got some struggles in terms of mental health. Depression also can come from a chemical imbalance. Not enough of something or too much of something else. And that's why it's defined as neurotic or psychotic. Depression can also come from looking at too much television. Because television possesses a view of persuasion. And so when you start looking at certain aspects of television and those particular persons or those programs become your role models and that happens, then you attempt to mimic your life after those individuals and when you can't arrive at where they are, you become depressed. And that's not just a young people thing. Us old folk do the same thing as well. 51% of children between the ages of 8 and 15 suffer from depression or some form of mental health. Did you catch that statistic? If there are two children in a room, one of them probably got a depressed or a mental health challenge. Do you realize how high of a problem that is? If that statistic is correct, we in trouble because that's a part of your future. 
Suicide is the second leading cause of death for ages 15 through 54, often birthed out of depression. I think I made that mention earlier. I'm just concerned about the age range. And then here's the one that got me. Depression has caused the suicide rate of clergy to have multiplied six times in the last decade. Because clergy, we come to church, we climb the steps and come to the pulpit, we put on a mask to smile before you because we have to preach to you the gospel and then we walk out of the pulpit and have to take off the mask and face the real person of who we are. Because we don't want you to know that we suffer with depression because your expectation is preachers, if anybody got a righteous life and if anybody got a life that mimics Jesus, it's got to be my pastor. That's why I tell you all the time, and that's why I act a little crazy sometimes, so I want you to recognize I'm not a perfect guy. And those of you who have been with me these 20 years, you already know that boy, and he ain't nothing perfect about that boy. That, that guy's kind of crazy. But the other thing is I try to speak with a realism because I want you to recognize you can put me up there if you want to, but you're going to be disappointed. I'm, I'm giving you a heads up. You're going to be disappointed. I'm going to say something. I'm going to do something. I can't tell you how many people who have said that they left because ah, Murphy did X, Y, Z and I don't like it. Well, this is the real world. Murphy's a real guy. And can I keep it real with you? So when I, I'll be nice. When I tee you off, you tee me off. So both of us are teed off. I mean, come on, let's be, let's be real. Some of you in this room probably have left church one Sunday morning or after a meeting. I mean, I, I can shoot that dude, man. He's crazy. He lost his mind. And I have left here. I could shoot you. No, no, actually, you know what? Actually, it's not sad. It's the truth, and it's also a symptom of family. Because that's what family do. They fuss, they fight, they cuss each other out, they talk about each other, but they heal. And when a crisis comes, they lay aside every weight and issue that do so easily beset them and they run the race together until they get to the healing space they need to be. And when they find out that somebody in the family is depressed, it's my job to find out why you're depressed and what can I do to get you out of that depressed state. That's what friends are for in good times and bad times. Somebody call Quincy Jones for me and tell me. <laughs> Charles Haddon Spurgeon was the, probably is regarded as one of the great Baptist preachers of all time. He preached in the latter part of the 18th century, I think it was, 
And Spurgeon preached to thousands every Sunday. Spurgeon may have very well been one of the earlier definers of what we now call the mega church. He was preaching to 10, 15, 20,000 in the 1800s. But Spurgeon would climb the pulpit every Sunday morning and preach the word and climb out of the pulpit and go home and struggle with depression. Spurgeon said it this way. He said, when I came to church and when I ascend, and I've seen old pictures of the Metropolitan Tabernacle and the pulpit stairs go up to the podium. And he says, when I ascend those steps, it's as if I'm going up to Mount Sinai. And when I get up to Sinai, watch the verbiage, I am masked from the pain, predicaments, and problems that I have because it's, it's if it's nobody but me and God. But when I descend from Sinai, I once again have to confront the real me when I get back home and I sink into depression. This is from one of the greatest preachers of all time who suffered from depression. Why? Nobody ever really knows the reason why or knew the reason why Spurgeon had depression. Just something he experienced. He said, I realize I'm not as whole as I thought I was. I'm fragile. I'm fragile. So the fact that Elijah is mentioned in the New Testament suggests to me that his story carries a bit of authenticity alongside his Hebrew foreparents of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Moses. Someone thought enough to put his story, i.e. James, into his New Testament writing at least to say to us, that Elijah has a like nature, just like you and I. He's no different. And that's amazing to me because Elijah was a man, first of all, understand the backdrop of Elijah's life is found in 1 Kings chapter 16, 17, and 18. And we won't get to that today, but I'll start that next week. But I'm going to give you enough to chew on about Elijah and about how depression had made such an interesting invasion in his life. But Elijah says, verse 17 and 18 of James chapter 5, Elijah is a man of prayer. Now, how do you suffer from depression and you're a man of prayer? Is that not what your Bible said in James chapter 5, verse 17? It said Elijah earnestly prayed. That means that Elijah was a man who constantly was in prayer, seeking the face of God on everything that he needed to have done. He not only was a man of prayer, but he was a man of power. His prayer was, it's not going to rain. That, that, that's his prayer. We'll find out later. That that's because God told him to pray that. But that's his prayer. It's not going to rain. His power was, here it is, it didn't rain. For three and a half years, it did not rain. 
But his problem was he became depressed from a threat by an enemy. As I said, 1 Kings chapter 16. In fact, if you have your Bible, turn there right quick and I'll just give you a few points and then we, we're going to have to close it out. 1 Kings chapter 16 is the backdrop. And I want to also make this point that I think that there are several characters, but I want to talk eventually about three, three particular contributors that I think cause Elijah to sink into depression. And in 1 Kings chapter 16 is the first one, and that is the politics, the political environment to which Elijah had to minister. If you look in your Bible in 1 Kings chapter 16, go around to verse, uh, I want to say it's 29. Let me just make sure. Yeah, 29. The political environment for Elijah is a tough one because he now has to preach under the we'll use modern day vernacular I won't use so much historical under the presidency of Ahab I want you to take your Bible and look at something very interesting about Ahab because look at verse 30 first of all in verse 29 it says Ahab he's going to be president for 22 years we don't have that kind of can you imagine 22 years or 45 I might consider suicide after 22 years of 45. But he's, he's going to be the king slash president for 22 years. But here's the problem. Verse 30 says, Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. Now, when you read back through chapter 16, here's something you discover. That phrase is going to be presented pretty much on every king of Israel. Israel now is a divided kingdom. It's a divided kingdom because they decided that God wasn't going to be the God of their life anymore. And so as a result, God allowed them to become a split, divided kingdom. You'll notice that if you go back and look at the different kings, it will say they did evil in the sight of the Lord, more evil than the person before them, which meant that now Elisha has to be in a political context that's progressively evil. It gets worse through every president. And I tried to sit and think about, when I thought about this, let me see how many presidents I can remember in my memory since I've been alive. And I think the first I can't remember was JFK. I was too young then, so I didn't know who, what president was. Lyndon Johnson, I didn't know anything about politics, so, you know, I, I just knew he was the president at the time when I was a little boy. Then came Richard Nixon. And then I think after Nixon, did it come Gerald Ford? Gerald Ford, then Jimmy Carter, and then it just went away after that. And I thought about how many Ahabs I saw in, the t in my lifetime. Honey, progressive evil all the way up to where we are now. And Elijah knows that this is the political climate that I'm going to have to be a part of. And that's a bad thing. 
Not the same vernacular, but the same actions. Listen to what it says. It says in verse 31, and it came about as though it had been a trivial thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Naboth. Now you go back through chapter 16, you'll see that phrase repeated over and over and over again. And so the question has got to be, what was the sins of Jeroboam? Well, Jeroboam decided that because Solomon's son would not make him king, he got mad and decided he'd make his own kingdom. In doing so, he misled Israel and he misled them uh, by making sure that they followed after him and what he did was appealed to their particular religious persuasion. He did the one thing that he knew, and keep this in mind, I'm not gonna dig too deep here because my time gonna run out, but he, he attacked the one thing he knew that Israel could not resist, and that's their relationship with God. It's like he attacked the one thing he knew that would be problematic for us, and that is our community. So he calls it a rat hole. He says it's infested with rats. Who would want to live there? I.E. Baltimore. He perpetuates a sense of hate among the people. So those who were a part of his nationalistic agenda, they are trumpeting him. Talking about Jeroboam. because he's pushing a view of persuasion that there's another faction of the nation who believes that they should be. That's why they wanna make Israel great again. And so you ask, first of all, when were you great? Because when, when you use the word again, that means you must have had a previous experience of greatness. What era are you talking about? And what does that mean? We, we want to take Israel back to what it used to be, an idolatrous nation, and that's what Jeroboam did. So you, you, you hear the echo? We want to take it back uh, simply because affirmative action made too much progress. It created too much resemblance of equality. Uh, Here's what I found interesting. There is, it's a tiny little community in West Virginia, real tiny. I, I just, I'm sorry I can't remember the name of it, but it's extremely poor, extremely poor. Uh, voted for Obama overwhelmingly, but voted for Donald Trump overwhelmingly because Donald Trump promised that he would revise, not, not revise, revive the coal mining industry. Now, you know, you don't have to be a rocket scientist in environmental science to know you're not going to revive the coal industry. It's not going to happen. Environmentally, it's just not up to par. And that little town right now is struggling. In fact, it's almost completely bankrupt. No one lives there hardly anymore. I think they got about 100 citizens left in the town out of several thousand during the election. 
because the promise made, they now realize was L-I-E. It wasn't gonna happen. But people, politicians, make promises that they know they can't keep. But I'm interested in the vote because I wanna be in space. 84% of white evangelicals voted for Donald Trump. That may not mean anything to you, but it does to me because it tells me that's the reason why when he makes statements and tweets like he does, they don't say anything. Just this past week, Archbishop out of DC, a brother finally said, enough is enough. We, we got to say something about this. His language tweets is dividing. It's divisive. It's dividing the nation. Haven't heard one of my evangelical brothers say anything other than that he's doing a great job. If it wasn't for kids, I'd say something different, but I just asked the question, <laughs> what planet are you living on? Because they want to walk in the sins of Jeroboam what we used to do. That, those are cold words. Let's wind the clock back. Because America is browning too much. Too much brown around here. That's why I told them four sisters, go back to your own country. What, what kind of language is that? They were born here, fool. The sins of Jeroboam, Governor George Wallace. Segregation now, segregation forever. Bull Connor, wind the clock back. Jeroboam took the people back. He did that by doing this. The first thing he did was he corrupted the worship by instituting golden calves to be worshiped. Now, all you got to do is read Exodus 20, and Exodus 20 says, Thou shalt have no other gods before me. And he tells him, Don't make any images. Read a little further. When Moses goes up to Sinai, and Aaron is left down there to help lead the people, what do they do? They coach Aaron into making a golden calf, which leads them astray. And you'll be amazed who actually came forth to fight for what God has said, they were a rebel group, a rebel tribe, a wayward tribe who were known as gangsters. They were known as gangsters because a part of their personality were using shanks to cut people. You know who they were? The tribe of Levi. You know who Levi eventually became? The Levitical priesthood. Talk about God converting gangsters into preachers. Elijah knew now he had to stand before a presidential context that took the people back to idolatrous worship. They substituted the person of God for golden calves. Second thing he did was he changed the place of worship. Worship in the Old Testament was specifically for Jerusalem. That's where God, through David, eventually 
satisfied that he wanted to be in terms of having the space of worship, he changed it to Dan and Bethel. His excuse was Jerusalem's too far for the people to travel. That kind of sounds like us now when you think about that thing. Modern convenience. That's what he made convenience. He risked being disobedient to make convenience for the people. Third thing he did was he, he appointed priests from everybody. So in the Old Testament, you could only be a priest if you were a part of the Levitical priesthood. You had to be in that line. Jeroboam assigned anybody he thought would be a good priest. God was appointing those who he sent. Jeroboam was appointing those he just wanted to go. They just went. He did the three things that caused God to become extremely angry. Then there was a fourth thing. He altered the feast of celebration. He changed the date. Read Leviticus, God had already put in place what day of the month, what year I wanted these celebrations to take place. He changed it. He decided, nah, we want another time because we want it to be convenient for us. And Elijah knew this is the kind of political climate that I got to be in. I want to close by saying this. That's a consideration for us to think about how depressed we could become when we think about the political climate that we're in. When we have a president who simply says that the folk in Charlottesville are good people. The white nationalists who killed a girl run her over with the car. Thank goodness he's in jail, won't be getting out no time soon because he deserves it. Hate should not lead you to the extinguishing of someone else's life. But he calls them good people. People who espouse hate. That's his agenda. And if you put on a blind eye toward what's happening to us politically now, I really feel sorry for you. You're gonna wake up one morning and you're gonna see a lot of things change. Here's the real reason I'm trying to make you aware of something. This president is appointing, is appointing chief justices who has a history <clears throat> of undermining and voting against voting rights. Now, if you don't think that's important, maul this through your mind, then we're going to pray. People who look like you and I are the only persons in this country who need a Voting Rights Act and a Civil Rights Act. We're the only ones who need that. Do your history, anybody else need it? Don't nobody else need it? We're the only ones who have to have a Civil Rights Act and a Voting Rights Act. And what you may not be aware of is that that Voting Rights Act comes up for renewal every 50 plus years. And now you got somebody who's appointing chief justices who vote against voting rights. And here's what, here's what that means. So they find a way to redistrict, redraw the lines, change the rules, 
Just like we have our fight in North Carolina. Just like we had to fight in Texas. They find a way to change the rules, voting suppression, that's what we call it technically. Trying to quiet your voice, why? Because even as an average citizen, you've got one voice that counts when it comes to presidential and officials in this country, and that's your ability to vote. Why do you think there's a constant fight to keep you from voting? Now there's a, a move to sort of shift, and I'm, I'm not going to do it next week. It'll probably be the third Sunday. There's a movement to shift the Hispanic vote. You know Republicans are working hard now to get Hispanic vote. But there's a segment of Hispanic brothers and sisters who are contending that we'll do whatever we have to do to get in power, which even means displacing my black brothers and sisters. You better open your eyes. And this is the kind of context that the prophet has to speak in. And Elijah knows that to stand before Ahab, who is the power structure, that means that Elijah got to have some strength. But this is a contributing factor, I think, to Elijah's depression. I just came to tell you, don't be depressed. Be not dismayed. Whatever the tide, God will take care of you. No matter what you read or hear during the week, we don't have any choice but to fight. And by fighting, I mean don't just pray about it. We got to get in the fight. We got to start politically fighting to preserve what those fought for us to give us. So our ancestors who never saw the day to vote, never saw a civil right, they died that we could see it. We would do them the injustice of not fighting to make sure that that opportunity is preserved. Our children don't know what that means. We would do them an injustice not to explain to them why you must fight why you must never think that your freedom is secure. I'll drop this one and then I'm done. So the police officer who murdered Eric Garner gets an option. His option is after the trial, he could be fired by the police department. Wow. Or he could retire early and still collect a pension. Because the judge didn't think that his actions were in violation of Eric Garner's civil rights. We're the only ones in this country who's got to worry about police brutality. You, you tell me anybody else who has that concern. We're the only men, black men, who's got to tell their black sons, this is what you need to do when you leave this house and you drive down the street and you go to work. This is what you're going to have to do if you are stopped by a police officer. 
Don't deviate from the plan because if you do, you may not come back home. And I don't want to have to bury you before you bury me. We're the only ones who has to do that. Nobody else does. And because you live, I live in the suburbs, we think we've arrived. That's how I know you don't know your history. Black folk have always lived where white folk live. Even doing segregation, even doing slavery, even doing reconstruction, we've always managed to get in there somewhere, somehow. Sure, we suffered the consequence, but we've always managed to be. Just because you live next door, that don't mean nothing. What's on the book? And they've already taught us when we pass a law, it don't mean nothing until it's enforced. If it took them 10 years to enforce the Brown versus Board of Education, what does that tell you? The LGBT community made their point clear, went to Capitol Hill and fought, and in two years, they got the right to marry. Two years. Two years. And do you know how long it took us to get the right to vote again? That's the political climate that Elijah knew he had to get a part of. And we're a part of that same kind of climate. It can lead to depression when our folk don't know how to handle it. Let me get this Bible verse and then we're going to pray. Here's this Bible verse right here. Lord Jesus, did I drop my Bible verse? Please tell me I didn't drop my Bible verse. Here we go. I did. Proverbs 18, verse 14. A man's spirit sustains him in sickness, but a crushed spirit who can bear it. Your fortitude, your relationship with God will bear you, keep you going in the midst of anything. But when your spirit is crushed and you're reduced to a state of depression, who can handle it? Now Paul says in, first, in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 8 and 9, we are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed, perplexed, but not in despair, persecuted, but not abandoned, struck down, but not destroyed. There's been an effort to destroy us. We keep popping back up. Weebles wobble, but they don't fall down. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for this moment. Part one of Silent Killers Living Behind the Mask of Depression. Thank you for making us alert as to this early state of Elijah's life. He's in a political climate that's going to challenge him.